0: Please join me in welcoming our appraiser panelists for today's appraisal checks and balances panel discussion. First, I'd like to welcome Mr. Michael Perrin. Mr. Perrin is the owner of Perrin Appraisal and Consulting LLC. He has been an appraiser and member of GLAR for almost 18 years. Mr. Perrin specializes in residential appraisal and is working on certification for luxury homes and energy efficient green homes. Thank you, Mike, for being here today. Our next panelist is Beth Graham. Mrs. Graham is in her 38th year of appraising. Beth was Women's Council of Realtors State President in 2004. She was Realtor of the Year for 2010 and Greater Lansing Association of Realtors President in 2016. She is currently serving on the Michigan Realtors Board of Directors for District 7 and is Vice Chair of the National Association of Realtors Real Property Valuation Committee. Thank you, Beth, for being here. Our third and final panelist is Doug Petroff. Mr. Petroff has been in the appraisal industry for 30 years and his focus and experience is in the residential field. The areas and coverage of his work include single family residential, investment properties, vacant land, consulting, divorce, bankruptcy estates, and individual requests for homeowners and realtors. Doug has served on numerous committees within GLAR and currently holds the position of 2023 president-elect. Thank you, Doug, for being here. Please help me in joining Welcome to them here all today. We will be taking questions uh, from people online and also from you here today please raise your hand so that we can get over to you with a microphone so that not only everybody here, but everybody at home uh, can also hear your question and hear the response. Thank you very much. I'm gonna start out with the first question. Are appraisers realtors? Yes,
1: appraisers are realtors. <laughs> It's a common misconception. Um, a lot of people think we're affiliates, but we are realtors. We are a member of the National Association of Realtors. And um, and therefore, we have to abide by the code of ethics and professional uh, standards and all that, and then all the standards that we have to abide by for our own profession. So um, be nice to us, please. <laughs> so... And we can go on to
2: the next. Uh, sorry. I think I think Beth covered it quite well. Um, not only do we have uh, the realtor code of ethics to abide by, but we also have our Bible use path to abide by, which is what, roughly like this thing. Yes. <laughs> um, and it kind of it kind of denotes what we have to do in terms of reporting, uh, recording. And um, ethics in our field as well.
1: So, uh, in Michigan, there are four, lic- four levels of licensure. This is just some general things that we're going to go over first. Um, so, there's a certified general who can do your farms, your commercial properties, anything that's complex. So um, a lot of times people call me and say, can you do a bar? Can you do a commercial? Nope, I, I'll refer you to somebody that can. Um, and certified rents, residential, we we are all certified residential. We can do FHA. We can do anything over a million um, that we're, that we feel that we're qualified to do. And then there's state license, they can do up to a million dollar transactional value, uh, typically no FHA or ID. Um, and then a limited license. So if you were just starting out, you wanted to be an appraiser, you take 40 hours worth of class plus another uh, 30 um, in-use PAP. So it's like 75 hours and plus, yeah, and then you gotta find somebody to train under to get out your experience hours, which typically is the hardest part of the job. But um, if you want to be an appraiser, that's where you start with the limited license.
3: Okay. And that's that's all on top of having a college degree as well. Right, yes.
1: <laughs> Any other comments? <time>? No, okay. <laughs> so uh, just quickly, this, if you, It's a long website, but this is a website if you want to look up um, if if an appraiser is licensed um, and who might be coming to the house to do your appraisal. So um, the first one is the state of Michigan website, and that is for anybody that even has a limited license. Now, you can go to ASC.gov, and that would be anybody that has the higher licenses, like state license, certified residential, and certified general. You're not going to find your trainees on the ASC website. So it's helpful to, I know, in Lansing we get a little lax with checking out who's going to be coming to your property to do the appraisal, but these are helpful websites to just do a little double check and and see if that person is actually licensed or um, where
2: they may be coming from. Any other comments? Um, yeah, I have a comment on that. Um, <clears throat> well, most of you know the local uh, appraisers here in town and have dealt with us quite a bit. Um, if you have a unique property or something outside of the area, say you're going to like, you know, you have a friend who wants to list a cottage up in, you know, Point City or something. There are ways, including this list to go about finding. That's where you'd probably go to find another appraiser Um, or you know you can contact one of us sometimes we know um, people that we've gone through classes and stuff with that would we'd be happy to refer or I've given also people you can go to the uh, appraisal institute website and you can search appraiser in your area and um, a lot of times those if you need something more commercial aspect um, industrial stuff like that you can find MAIs and SRAs and people who will specialize in those certain products, but these are all different resources if you need to go outside of your area to check or call your local appraiser and ask um, for, you know, any references they might have.
3: And one of the guidelines we're supposed to follow is uh, we have to be competent within our geographical area, so you know, although I know the Kalamazoo area that was where I was born and raised, uh, I'm not gonna go there and do appraisals because I haven't lived there in 30 years. I'm gonna stay here. Uh, this is the area that I've worked in for the last 18 years. So I know the Lansing area.
1: And, and one other thing, I think we'll just touch on it fast. There's a new product out there called, um, it's a desktop product where they send out a property data collector and then an appraiser sits at a desk someplace and, and works up that appraisal after the data is collected so um, those people aren't technic- they're, they're usually not licensed they might be an agent but just do your due diligence Google that person that they say that's going to come to the property and, and go that extra step for your seller to make sure you know who is coming to the house so because and, and have your seller present. You have a question. Can you, read, if you find out somebody is doing an appraisal like that, and you want you don't want that at your listing, can you request an actual appraiser to come out? Or not? well, if it's the buyer that is uh, getting financing, typically you can't have any um, saying that. You can you can ask, you know, obviously and raise some concerns, but if it you can't, interfere if it's your listing, you can't interfere with the buyer's financing product.
2: We've already had a situation here locally where um, this happened. Uh, it was brought to the attention of the board of directors um, was it two weeks or a month ago um, regarding someone wanting to gain access into the property that was out on parole. Um, and that was, and, and it, it Luckily, they did their research and, and stuff like that before, and not that anything would have happened, but just precautionary sake. Um, it, it raises concerns not only on, on your end for safety and whatnot, because you don't know the appraiser, but it also is very concerning to us because, according to um, Fannie and Freddie, it's supposed to quicken things. <laughs> um, we've... We all three disagree on that. Um, when you have someone going into a house that's not you that can't see what what you're looking at, and you're relying on pictures and comments uh, to f- form a final conclusion on that on that property in terms of value, um, there's a lot of liability then that hangs on our end. And so we don't like the product.
1: <laughs> and, and just to know if you have like show and go on your think on your listing in flex you know i i say get rid of this show and go i know it's easy but you need to really vet who's going to be coming to the house because you are in in charge of that seller you know they're trusting you with their with their home so anyways enough enough of that <laughs> okay and here here's a website of just uh some helpful tips the first one that link is on FLEX on your homepage and FLEX and that deals with finding your subdivision um, lot sizes. The next one is efanniemay.com and that is answers a lot of questions on what what we have to abide by and what um, for repair wise and all that. And then the next one is hud.gov and that is the uh, documents that we have to follow if we're doing FHA or RD in regards to repairs and uh, property condition. So, here get that. and here's just a quick screenshot of all the useful website links in uh, Flex, and that's got your subdivision. Uh, link and it's got a link for the Ingham County land rates that we'll cover in a minute. Um and then the tax rates too. So it's very, very helpful. I go there all the time. <laughs> Any other okay. Now we'll get an evaluation. So do you want to go over that? Sure. Knock it out. The
3: uh, <clears throat> in other words How we go about? Yep. Uh, Okay. So we're we're often asked, how do we go about finding our comparables? And the first thing that I do is I look at the exact neighborhood, where your house is located, what the borders of that neighborhood are, and what has sold. Doesn't matter what kind of style. Doesn't matter how large, how small, how old, how young. Um, I just get a good feel of what's being sold in that neighborhood. So I know if it's a hot neighborhood or not or maybe uh, we've all seen the houses that are about uh, five to six years old in the neighborhood where everything was built in 1940. uh, So, you know, you you gotta know if yours is a one-off or if it's just like the rest of them. And then after that, I'll narrow my field down. Uh, Generally we use about 20 to 25% larger, smaller, uh, 15 to 20 years older, newer, and we try and bracket the subject property as much as possible so that we're coming at the house, the subject, from all angles to determine its value. Um, houses need to be similar. I'm not gonna use a 100-year-old two-story farmhouse when my subject is a 1960s range. It makes no sense. Um, the people that buy ranch homes generally don't buy 100-year-old two-story homes. So you look at, you want your comparables to look like, or similar. And then on top of that, I'll go and find what has sold very recently. Um, A lot of the lenders like to see a trend. Um, They want you to put your comparables in sale order. So your oldest is number one, your most recent sale is number five, six, or seven, uh, so that they can get a trend and see what the market is doing, which is a very helpful tool for us too. Um, And then on top of that, I find uh, something that is exactly like the subject. Maybe the house two doors down is a cookie cutter and it sold six months ago. That's probably one of your best comparables right there. If They're identical.
2: Thanks, uh, Mike. So um, keep in mind too, that just like everybody out here in, in our audience, we all do things a little differently. Um, you know, we, we see things differently. Um, we, we, Look for our comparables differently. Um, we we square footage is sometimes slightly different. Um, Mike and I could go measure the same house and we might be you know a couple square feet off. Um, just happens. Um, but we when when we're searching comparables and, and I guess in speaking, let's let's take this to your end of it. When you're searching comparables and you're looking for a house um, to to maybe think like we're thinking. Um, there are, there are criterias that, well, while it's a suggestion where we stay, um, you know, through some of our lenders, like, oh, we don't want anything over, you know, three miles or whatever. That's not necessarily always holding true um, for unique properties, for specific properties. Sometimes you have to go outside, either outside the area. Um, but when we do that, we have to explain why we did it and 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 how we came up with with our valuation based on that as well as um, and don't be afraid to I get calls from realtors all the time with unique properties um, you know where they're like I have no idea how to price this home what should I do for comparables don't be afraid to go back in time it's probably the easiest way to go back into a neighborhood and 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 Research into your market or in within that market your submarket, um, where valuation or or the trends have gone in terms of either um, appreciation in value or in a market we were in, you know, 15 years ago, decline in value, um, and that's an easy adjustment to do through through Flex, where you can see, you know, oh, this neighborhood has improved or increased a percent or two percent or six percent a year to apply them to that house you're looking at. Um, and there's certain situations where we do have to go back in time because when you're looking at a unique property or something like that and or a unique neighborhood, and we all kind of know certain neighborhoods around, uh, around the Lansing area that are very unique, um, have homes that, you know, sell word of mouth a lot. Um, I can think of two <laughs> um, that you're basically, you know, there's not a comp anywhere to be found um and so you have to maybe go back in time and it's an easy adjustment to apply when you're looking at um you know your well like like for instance i did a study a while back a quarterly stats from 2022 and let's take the let's take the lansing market because that was most similar um you know so the median value Quarter one, two, three, and four were as follows in, in the Lansing School District. I'm going to round it so I'm not boring you to death. 113, quarter two is 135, quarter three, 134, and quarter four, 129. With current active, and I just updated this last night, active pending um, that, that whole uh, res- research and data there was 133. And what we're seeing, though, and what you can see in this, is you got the days on the market that dropped significantly in quarters two, three, and four, and then now the days on the market are up to 69. So, um, you know, when you when you talk about the national media talks about the housing recession we're in, um, I don't know if I fully believe that in the Lansing area. That looks pretty stagnant and. and flatline to me right there with 135 134 129 133 um that's pretty much nothing's moving up or down which is a good thing but um in terms of our valuation i think mike hit it you know pretty pretty close there like i said we all do it differently but um and and when we're looking at comparables we 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 start with the most common comparable that we can find um, and with as many similarities to that property as possible.
1: So I'll just give you a story of a property I was working on last night that yesterday, I shouldn't say I work at night. (laughs) So, um, is a, a simple ranch in, in Mason on a crawl space. So I'm searching for other crawl space properties because that's a big, you know, uh, big deal. So, um, and in our MLS, it's really not that easy to search for crawls and slabs and all that. So I just did basements under 100 square feet, and I found some crawls. So I had two good comps that way. And then I, um, then I just looked for other similar features, and then I went one by one through all these sales, and I found some more crawls that had the basement, um, somebody had put, an um, error they put like square footage in the basement when it really had a crawl space so that's where it's always make sure what you're reporting is accurate because we really rely on good good data so so anyways i found two comparable sales with a crawl space similar three bedroom ranches and then my third was similar in every way but it had a basement and then i put in a 4 they happen to be in the same subdivision that was a similar um, estate type property. So it, it all ended up rounding out to a very close final range of value. So it's kind of like you look for the closest features and then it's like, okay, that's all I have. I'm gonna go to the next and then the next, and then you hopefully you'll end up in a close range in the final. So that's my little story.
2: Do we have any questions out there of that process or no? I'm going to add to Beth's um, comments there because I do think it's vital and very important, crucial on our end. But it's also very important on your end as well. your Lack of information, lack of pictures, lack of comments within the MLS where you're trying to do a CMA on a property. And if all you have is the front picture of the house, how are you to know what the inside looks like with no comments? And, and, and you're going to rely on that house to hang your value onto your client. And it's no different with us when we're trying to, you know, look at this nineties, you know, 1992 story, you know, three bedroom, two and a half bath house that maybe is period dated. Uh, um, how are we supposed to compare apples to apples when we can only see the front of the house. Um, and that, that really helps us out, but it also in the long run helps all the realtors out out there because now you've got good data to rely on or rely on where you can look at properties as well and determine is this house comparable to mine or are the upgrades different and where should I price my house out? So, um, the, the pictures, the comments are, are very important on, on both of our ends, and it just helps our industry as, as a whole. I
1: have a question: Yes, yes. Wanda.
4: Once there was a there's a home off of Tecum- There was a home off of Tecumseh River, and it was a ranch. And later on, after we closed, we found out that that particular ranch had a septic tank and drain field, whereas other houses around it had a connection to sewer. My question is, when you're doing comparables, would you compare a home that has a well and septic to a home that is
1: connected to public water and public sewer? That's my question. Right. Well, with say with the house I was working on yesterday, um, it had a larger lot, it had well and septic, and... Comparing it to my other two that had a crawl space, they were on smaller lots with public water and sewer. So I look at, I analyze, you know, what the site value is for the two different properties. And a lot of times it's like, even though this is a bigger lot, it's got well and septic, it's the same value as that smaller lot. So it always breaks down to, I I gotta see what that land value is and if there's any marketability differences between the two, and then see if there would be. But in a case where where your situation, where the whole neighborhood has public water and sewer, you know, that that might take a hit because they're gonna have to connect if, if something happens, they get turned off. <laughs> Some of the lenders require us to
3: document uh, whether a house and the comparables are on well and septic or if they're uh, on public water and sewer. Uh, so having those comments in the listings helps us out a lot, saves us a lot of time, uh, especially when they're accurate. Uh, but it's what i found is that generally speaking, most of the buyers and sellers in the market don't really distinguish too much of a difference. Some people do like to be in the country. They know, well, I'm in the country. I'm going to have to have well water. Uh, if you want to live in a subdivision near the city, uh, you're going to have to have uh, sewer, or, uh, yeah, sewer and, and public water. So it's kind of a give and take on where people want to live.
1: So I think we got. Um, I passed a bunch of slides, so but they were basically on picking comps and and picking uh, similar comps, and then um, they've. Fannie Mae has done away with like you have to have them within ten percent, twenty five percent. They they threw away adjustment wise. They threw away all those type of guidelines. They do like to see comps within the last six months, but if uh, if we don't have good ones, we go back in time and and figure out a market condition. Uh, adjustment if needed so especially with the changing market after the interest rates finding recent comps as your one two and three are the best Um, in the slide up right now is bracketing bracketing is basically you know you find a inferior inferior and a superior um, feature in a in a comparable and um, so you can so, you don't pick comps that are all like a thousand square feet higher than your subject <laughs> to try to get to a certain value. You've got to like bracket that square footage. Um, or finding other properties with pools and pool barns and all that. So, we don't have to make a lot of adjustments. So, that's where it's always good too in your listings to make sure that you're adding photos of all those extra features and the sizes of your pole barns and the make of your pole barn, um, if, it's, if it's a really special one. So, um, and to think, you know, obviously it's a principle of substitution. Is, is a buyer gonna choose that comparable if um, this house wasn't available, you know? So, yep. you wanna talk about pole barns? When,
0: sure. when it comes to uh, adjustments for valuation, is there a constant formula that you guys use um, and and if so is it based on perhaps also zip code or location in other words is a half bath worth more in oakumus than in lansing and do that do those numbers change as the market changes uh
3: it will change a little bit by quality Uh, You get into some of the higher end neighborhoods. There's a lot more that goes into a bathroom. So those bathrooms are going to count for more dollars. Uh, One of the best ways I do is uh, what's the market going to pay for this? What is Mr. Buyer and seller going to pay for this? Uh, So next time you're having a dinner party, ask your friends, how much would you pay for an extra half bath in the house? That right there is going to be your true test. Uh, The other thing is you can think about it. uh, Um, we do what's called paired sales analysis where we find two almost identical homes where the only thing that's different is maybe a bathroom or maybe one has a two stall garage, one has a one stall garage and we crunch all the necessary numbers. The difference that we come up with is gonna be the value of that one item that you're looking for. So we do it mathematically. Uh, We can also use our cost book if it's a feature on a home that it's loaded into our cost book we can dig through that information do the math and figure out how much would it cost a builder to put this into a house so that gives us another anchor point to
2: determine a value
1: less depreciation yes less depreciation it's, it's
2: basically an estimated cost to cure minus depreciation um good question jeff
1: but we don't we don't have lists or anything like that to give out
2: yeah, <laughs> Although, <laughs> we, we don't have a cheat sheet out there.
1: Although I do say to people, pillar to postcom and you're probably not supposed to say a name, but, but they do have a great cost versus value web um, list. And they're always at like the convention and they have a great little handout that you can see like, if you're going to put in a new such and such, this might be the value you get out of it. Um so, and, and NAR has that too, cost versus value, um, on their website too. And those are always helpful, like a, a kitchen remodel might bring you back this much in this market. So, um, obviously we always have to tweak it a little bit and, um, and, and that, so. We have a question online. What about the valuation of pole barns?
2: Well, um pole barns are there's different types of barns there's different quality of barns Um, obviously there's different sizes of barns a a standard barn with like a steel side steel roof with a dirt floor no electricity um, isn't going to demand as much in the market as maybe a steel sided barn with a steel roof with concrete floors and a floor drain and electricity and insulation and drywall. I mean, it's, it's no different than a house when you start adding features to it and amenities to it. Um, it's more desirable. We can't say that word anymore, but yes. it's, it's more enticing to people. Um, you know, you, you have a barn you is a finished product. Um, In terms of how we value a barn, um, I've always been, you know, taught that it's contributory value and what it contributes to the whole of the property. Um, So you have a 60 by 100 barn on a one acre property, it's probably excessive. (laughs) Um, But if you have a 30 acre, you know, farm with a 24 by 40 barn, it's probably too little. Um and so it in my opinion it's how it contributes to the whole and property, again going to the cost uh, minus depreciation.
1: So it, it was really interesting a few years ago when people all started having their own little grow operations and <laughs> you were down in Charlotte and you vegetables could things. vegetables vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> and you could definitely tell the houses that were selling with the big pole barns and how valuable they were. And it was it was really, it's really cool when you find those little nuggets of, you know, wow, this house has no pole barn, no options of extracurricular <laughs> activity. Um, so anyways, it's, it's kind of fun to find those little nuggets. I
2: think we had another question here.
1: So I, okay, I probably don't need
5: this, but. Um, so I think the biggest thing that I struggle with when I'm doing a CMA, this is really loud, um, is uh, square footage adjustments. And I know I mean, you're saying everybody does things slightly different, but I'm always looking for as close as possible. But sometimes you have a lot of houses that are really, really close, but maybe they've added or they've done a large addition or whatever. So um, two questions. What is typically the biggest difference in square footage you want to see to compare, and do you
1: have kind of a, a formula so so we don't we don't look at properties like you do and look at the square footage um, price per square foot so unless i mean sometimes you can see the condition difference like if it's an estate and it's selling for 100, but all the updated homes are selling for 120. I mean, that gives us a good idea of the adjustment. I mean, maybe twenty dollars a square foot. But so there's this thing called the Ratterman theory. So for appraising, it's um, kind of a sensitivity analysis. So you're you we have our say comparable sale one, two, and three we add up the price per square foot and divide that by three to come up with an average and then divide that by the quality of the property. So if it's your um, average house, you may be divided by four and that gives us our price per square footage to make our adjustment across um, the grid. So we don't look at it like you guys look at it because we're breaking everything down by feature and buy paired sales, like to come up with your pole barn or your bathrooms and so, um, but we do, I do refer to it, like a lot of times you can see that price per square foot difference in a quality or a condition or some other big feature, Um, but it's nothing like you guys do it. Does that make sense? (laughs) Right, right, yeah. don't come up with,
5: you know, we don't have a problem when, it, right. you know, we want to make sure that what we're coming up with supports a fair appraisal. So that's why I was asking. Right. I no, think that's where sense. it would be
3: yeah, important to make sure that you're finding something that looks similar inside, that's smaller, something that looks similar inside, that's bigger, right. and then let the math tell you where it's going. Do an average, do a median, find out what those two numbers are going to give you. And then you have got a rough idea. Well, you know, it, it's telling me $35 per square foot. Okay. So I'm going to add that to my subject to get my marketing value.
2: And I think, I think one of your question, one of the parts of your question um, before you broke into a musical on the second part, which thank you. That was great. Um, was a range. Um, the, there's no particular set range. Um, Again, it comes down to more condition, Um, but we try to keep it fairly close. You have a 1200 square foot ranch. We're going to want, we, we like to see it right around there. Um, Our lenders really like to see it right around there. Um, The homeowner likes to see it around there. We don't want to have, you know, a bunch of 800 square foot ranches on, on board when they're like, wait, ours is 1200 square feet. Um, So we, we, that's where it goes, goes back to bracketing. Um, we'll bracket the square footage. Um, in, in a perfect world, we'd bracket square footage, and that would be it. And and the conditions would all be the same. All the amenities would be the same. The views would be same, the same. But that's a book world, and we don't live in a book world. So um, sometimes we have to pick an orange that, and paint it kind of to look like an apple. <laughs>
3: That's where it goes back to knowing your neighborhoods. Uh, If you've been in the area long enough, you've done enough houses, you know, homes in neighborhood A are a lot like they are in neighborhood C. Uh, They may be a mile and a half apart, but the same kind of people look at those two neighborhoods to live in. Uh, So from there, you know that, well, my house happens to be the biggest house in neighborhood A, but I know there's a couple of sales in neighborhood C that are bigger. So I'm gonna go over there and find one of those to then use to bracket my subject. So don't always have to look right in the same five or six streets of that subdivision to find what you're gonna use to market your home. You can expand from there. You just don't wanna go from uh, St. John's to Stockbridge unless it's absolutely necessary because now you're dealing something that's way far apart. There's really difficult to explain why you did
1: that. And that some of the markets too, like if you would bump up another 10 years in age, you can see a dramatic price adjust, you know, price difference. So stay in those age ranges and work condition obviously, but um, yeah. So I, I always look, you know, age style square footage within 200 each way. And uh, age style condition, pretty much
2: quality. So. Um, and then also, we have to look at specific um, things they have or don't have, like Beth's example earlier of a crawl space. Um, we have to search first and foremost are there any houses with crawl spaces in, in this area? Uh, and then we go back to that list that she just described condition, age, design. Um, quality of construction, you know, that sort of thing. And then factor in amenities or like a pool, same with that. Um, acreage is kind of similar to that. You know, you have something with 20 acres, you're going to want to bracket that acreage as well um, and get as close to that as possible with a similar type of home on it, you know. So that's uh, another, you know, thing we have to look at when it comes to outlying properties.
1: Question. What, if you're comparing your house and the house you just listed has a brand new roof, brand new furnace, brand new air, brand new hot water tank, um, the, those kind of features that, to the eye, but to the pocketbook is a lot of money, if I, how much does that roll into when you're a place? Well, obviously, we're going to try to find other comps that have those upgraded features or something similar to that. Um, and then... I mean, that's where I look at the disclosure statements to the comparable sales to see what they've had done to them and see if there is an adjustment that can be made, you know, for for condition. So, it, it you know, it, it just depends on, you know, there's no magic number or anything, but it, it all depends on those comparables we use. And, and that's where it's good if every listing says, you know, what's been done. Uh, provide an improvement sheet with it uploaded to flex so we can we can know and make an accurate adjustment so i know there's no golden answer to that okay so we have several questions online Uh, can age sometimes add value like historic homes in east lansing and how would you approach those I think that just comes down to quality and condition. Yeah. So it's, I don't think age really. Uh, it, yeah, that's a unique way to say it. I, I think that would come down to character probably, and you'd find want to find other properties with similar yeah. character and quality. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, uh, to, what about to the
3: naked eye? That's what's visible. That's what you see. This is an older home, but it's selling uh, for more money. Well. It's not necessarily the truth because if you take the age out of the factor and you look at the details of each home, you're going to find out that the newer homes are more of a cookie cutter. They lost the craftsmanship, which is quality. That's the heart and soul that was put into that house when it was built. So it's a, it's a quality
1: factor. What about horse properties or arenas and barns? Putting Placing a value on those.
2: I'd say the same with um, where, where we went back to the, the question about pole barns, um, the contributory value of that to the whole of the property. Um, obviously if you're, if you're looking at a horse, uh, if you're looking at a house that has, you know, um, a horse barn, uh, with stalls, a tap room, viewing room, that sort of thing, an indoor arena, um, you, you know, certain soil content that, that's better for the horses, um, an outdoor arena. All these different things are just amenities that you're going to have to, on our end, we have to try to find something that's a like product. Um, And good luck with that. Um, Although I did do one a couple years ago on Meridian Road, and if you've driven down Meridian Road, it's pretty much horse farm after horse farm after horse farm. Ironically, there were four of them that sold within two years on the same street, so I got lucky. Um, But there are a lot of times where um, the, the comment about from St. John's to Stockbridge, that might be the situation where you have to go that far to find a like property, um, keeping it obviously within um, a certain time frame and not forgetting about the marketability of each of these different towns that you go to. And are they similar? Um, and, and so that's a, a good question. i think it just goes back to the same thing with the barns.
3: Uh, a few things on that, um, barns uh, and pool barns and horse barns. Please, please, please take a couple pictures of the outside, get the dimensions of it, take a picture or two of the inside. Uh, show us that it has horse stalls. Show us that it has a riding arena. Uh, show us that it has a washing station or a heated tack room or maybe there's an office upstairs. Give us a picture of that so that we know what has gone into that and then we can do the math to find a value for it to put into your report or the, re- the report for the lender uh, and prove the value that you're marketing at. Uh, those are important things for us. Uh, the uh, website, uh, GLAR, you can actually pull up home values, use median home value in St. John's, the median home value in Stockbridge. And there you've got a number that's telling you what the price difference is between those two areas. So if you have to go to Stockbridge to find a house, you know you're gonna to have to add or subtract something to yours in order to make them
2: equal. Megan, do you have more questions?
0: Okay.
1: Okay. So, so now we're at the reconsider.
0: Yes, Jeff? <laughs> do appraisers take into consideration any assessor information such as SEV or taxable value? And if not, why not?
1: I typically don't. I mean, I, I might look at it, but usually um, it's very outdated if the person's lived there a long time, obviously. And then if they just bought it, it came up to what they purchased it for. So you um, might, maybe if I was at the end of my report, I might look at it. I do, and I've got it in the slides. I do look at the land value that they came up with. Um, and that depends on to the location if it's if it's a reliable source so. if you've got something that's an anomaly uh, you might want to
3: take a peek at it after the fact uh, there's been a few instances where i found uh, they originally told the assessor they were going to finish the basement well money started to get tight so they didn't do anything to the basement but now they're getting taxed for it which means their taxable value and their SUV is higher Uh, So there's your difference right there. Uh, None of that was actually done. They never came back out to lower the taxes. So it's good to take a peek at it if you get a strange situation.
2: And we do look at the assessor's records. So obviously we have to to get the parcel number and the legal description, um, lot size. What I would caution is, and I, I, I will usually take a copy of the sketch if it's provided out to the property, and double check measurements. And I would caution that on your side as well, because taking that at face value, uh, could be a very dangerous thing. We've been out to houses before, and especially with like situations like a Cape Cod, um, you know, they might say it's a story and a half, but really it's a story in three quarters. And so you, you're taking a, you know, a, a 1400 square foot Cape Cod and it's really 15, 1600, um, you know, it's, there's differences like that. Um, or I saw a situation where an entire second floor was left off. The assessor had it as a second floor. It was reported in square footage as a full two story. It was just a vaulted ceiling uh, to about four or 500 square feet. That's a big difference.
3: There's also those homes that have look like a two story colonial from the outside. You get inside and You've got a 20 by 20 living room, great room with cathedral ceiling, yet the assessor counted that. Uh, that 400 square foot, uh, 500 square foot difference, when you're doing your math and your pricing and we're doing our math, that's a big difference on the end. And that could be why the value is now lower and you guys are wondering what happened. So like you said, take the assessor's sketch to the place with you, take a tape measure and just do a spot check. You know, We don't expect you to measure the house like we do, but walk around, see if it jives with what you're seeing. And if you measure a wall or two to make sure, yep, this is a 30 foot wall, I'm good. We're gonna,
1: we're gonna cover
4: that in a minute on measuring. Wanda, do you have a question? Yes, I, I have a question. I would like to know, how does being in a flood zone impact the value
1: of a property? Well, obviously, you know, we're going to want to find other properties in the flood zone to see if it does. Um, But a lot of times you can see it where a house will sell for 10,000 less or whatever. So obviously we're going to have to find paired paired sales to prove any adjustment. Um, Some assessor records are really good that have their lower land value than how they've assessed it. And that's supportable too. So, um, but yeah, it's all based on paired sales and try to find other properties that are in, that, in the flood zone and see how the market reacted to that. Um, I've got the slide up right now for reconsideration of value. Um, in that, the easy part, you know, if you get an appraisal, it doesn't come in at your contract price, look over the appraisal. Make sure we didn't miss a half bath or we didn't miss some addition or something. So that's the easiest fix if you need to do a reconsideration of value. Obviously, everything has to go through the lender. So the lender will um, review the appraisal first, and then they send it out to the buyer. And then the buyer will meet with the buyer's agent to see you know, if you, if you need to uh,
0: you know, review
1: it. Send in new comps, and um, you know, and then th- then I'll go back to the lender. The lender will look at those comps and see if they're viable comps, and then send them to us to to um, look at it and see if there's any support for an increase. So, um, any other
3: thoughts on just because a house in a neighborhood or the subject neighborhood sold for more? doesn't mean it's gonna help bring the value up of the subject. It could be that that uh, one that you're sending us is newer, much larger, much nicer. Well, those are all features that we're gonna to have to make subtractions for to get to what the subject is. Uh, so that means that that 200,000 that you're sending us is now down to 170, which is what we priced the subject at to begin with. So you wanna look for something that is like we do, smaller, larger. Older, newer, better condition, worse condition to meet in the middle.
1: And also give us your comps. How did you meet us at the house? Give us your comps, how you price the property. Um, Most of us will take them. We may not look at them when we get home, but we're gonna be nice and take them. But no, I always like to look at them and see. And especially like, I just did a berm house and the other agent the agent that priced it she had berms in her file and of course the underwriter came back and said I want another berm so she had it in her file and it was in a associate or a MLS that was outside of our area so I missed it so that helped my you know it was pretty easy fix but maybe if she had given it to me up front I might not have had that question so if you have sales that you know of, because I know you've really searched hard to price your properties. You know, give those to the appraiser. You know, here's all the houses with pools in the neighborhood. Here's all the houses with huge pool barns or some special um, uh, accessory unit dwelling, you know, because I know you work hard to find those and just share them with us and it'll make the process a lot easier.
4: Wanda? I have another question related to your opinion as an appraiser on realtors that will say to another realtor that you may want to have the seller to repair this, repair that. They're second guessing, maybe something from the inspection report. And the reason why they're saying repair this ahead of the appraisal so you don't have to pay. So the buyer doesn't have to pay for an appraisal reinspection. What
1: is your opinion on on that?
4: I think or do that, you
1: have? One? I think that's a great idea. If you can, I always tell you know if you can paint, if you can talk your seller into painting the little because we we have to call it out, and it uh, it's for FHA, VA, RD, and conventional that we're supposed to call out repairs. So just saying in your listing. You can't go FHA or or whatever conventional. We have to call out repairs too. It's in the Fannie Mae guidelines. So, uh, yeah, health, safety, and structural integrity. So, if you can get those things done ahead of time, if your seller has the money to, you know, fix a major thing, obviously that's the best case scenario.
0: Just to follow up to uh, Wanda's question, um, I know that regardless of financing type, um, in certain situations, obviously you know, things are gonna be called for all the time. For instance, health and safety, okay? Can, can you explain uh, what some of the things are that are always going to be an issue regarding a, regardless of financing type?
1: Well, it's peeling paint, obviously, inside, outside. And it doesn't matter if it was before 1978 for FHA, if it's after 1978 and it's going to allow water to penetrate the structure, that has to be painted or stained. Um, uh, peeling paint, uh, uh, handrails over three steps, broken windows, and Those in the
3: soffits and, and eaves, yeah. uh, gutters that are.
2: Growing things, <laughs> which
3: all that water that then is supposed to go in the gutter ends up seeping into the house. So
2: for the most part, it's very glaring things that you're going to notice. It's not like we're like you know magnifying glass looking right. for clues in there.
1: And the HUD guidelines too. A lot of times, um, an inspector will say you have to put in GFI plugs. That's not in the HUD handbook because we're not electricians. We cannot say you need to put in those plugs. Whatever we say, we have to visually be able to go out and inspect. So if somebody says they put it in, I don't know if they put it in correctly. So the handbook says, if we see something with the electrical that's questionable, we call for an electrician to come out there and take care of it, because just not having the plug there in the kitchen. I don't, it could be grounded someplace else. So, um, so if you see that, that's something you can fight because you need, you need an electrician to make that determination. A appraiser can't come out there and take a picture and know that it's correctly, you know, installed, but, but it's basically health safety. Um, If a roof looks really bad, we'll have to call for a roof inspection and then have a, um, A builder or some a professional roofer come out and do that inspection. Um, So, and that's where I always say, if you're going to hire a property inspector, make sure they're a builder that can. If you're going FHA, they're a builder or somebody that's qualified to sign off on that. A lot of the inspectors don't have to be licensed in Michigan, and a lot of them don't have um, all the qualifications to sign off on um, the repair conditions. Other things
3: to look for would be exposed wiring, um, light switches that don't work. You know, you gotta have a light switch for the staircases. You gotta have a light switch in, in a bathroom that runs a fan. So if you find it doesn't work when you're walking through the house to sell it, there's something that we're gonna find too. We have another question.
5: I just wanted to know a lot of what you're talking about is like FHA or I wanted to hear what things could potentially be called out with conventional. I mean, I, I recognize. Exact same thing.
1: so peeling paint. Yes. Yes. It, it's in the Fannie Mae guidelines. We're supposed to call out these things. Now it's up to the lender if they want to have the, the, um, condition the appraisal, then it needs to be done. <clears throat> but anything we see needs to be reported in the appraisal. And then it's up to the underwriter to say yes or no. If it Even with FHA, they can say, we're fine with it, let's move on. But most lenders will say, you know, we want it done in advance. It all probably depends on the buyer's um, credibility. <laughs> so, because <clears throat> say for
5: a um, wood-sided home. I mean, we don't see tons of those anymore, but, you know, we still see some. So if it's an older couple who cannot physically paint and doesn't have the money, especially prior to close, to pay someone $20,000 to paint their home, then we're in a situation where, well, they can only sell for cash.
2: Well, they don't have to paint the entire house. Uh, it's, it's more well, scrape and bad. paint. <laughs> yeah, but if you have a certain area where the sun beats on it, it's facing south. Um, and around the windowsill, you've got some peeling paint, um, a scrape and paint on that portion. Um, like like Mike said, to seal that up so that you're not getting um, infestation or water in it, um, that suffices. Is there typically, a it's I... not the whole house yes. that's <laughs> that needs any scraping and painting. It's yeah. just a certain portion of it that's been beat by the weather a little bit harder.
1: That's where you have to negotiate with the, the buyer, I guess, and figure it out. Or, yeah, sell for cash, sell for less. I've
3: obviously. had a couple of cases where right. the buyer says, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. Uh, and they go over on their evenings or weekends and do the painting in that for them because they're the one buying the house. It doesn't cost the seller anything. It gets done.
1: So we're the eyes and ears for the lender, obviously. So, if they get this house back to them next year or whatever, and it's still peeling paint, they're going to have to paint it or they're going to have to do something. So, that's why we need to alert the lender. And say you're in the city of Lansing or someplace that for code compliance, the city's going to hit you for bad a badly you know house that's peeling really bad, and then it's going to cost you more or cost that buyer. So it's just all things you've got to, it's a bigger picture that you've got to look at. So, but but the old wives tale of it's going conventionally, you can have a swimming pool in your basement. It's like, no, we still have to abide by the same guidelines. It's got to be, have structural integrity and marketability. So if it affects the marketability, we definitely have to see it. So.
2: So yeah, let's move on to uh, the next slide on land value.
1: Okay, so a big question people always ask, you know, how do you uh, come up with your land value? Obviously we're looking at land sales and uh, the uh, asking, calling the equalization department and uh, running a search of sales. If you've got a really unique piece of property Talk to your assessors, talk to your equalization department in that county. They're usually very helpful and, um, you know, in finding uh, comparable sales for you. Do you want to touch on it? Do you want to go to
3: the next? Yeah, one thing, it's a case that I came across four or five years ago now uh, a three to five acre parcel being sold on a country road. And one of the marketing comparables that the realtor picked was in a high-end subdivision uh, that was a two-acre parcel. You're you're dealing with apples and oranges there. If you're selling a piece of land in the country, you want all of your comparables to be similar to that. If you're selling a subdivision lot, you want all of your comparables to be similar to that. Uh, So don't, don't mix those up. Because the land value is going to be much, much higher when it's in a high-end subdivision.
2: It may be the same size parcel, but the value is different. And that goes for you know, a lot of different types of property as well. Um, it could be if you've got a wooded, mostly wooded parcel, um, you're going to want to try to find more uh, comparables with more woods or wetlands on them. Like same with um, agricultural uh, 20 acre agricultural parcel or 40 acre, you're gonna want to. You're not gonna want to compare that to a wooded recreational parcel. Um, it's just not the same. Um, doesn't the buildable lot, you know, portions of that might not be the same. And all acreage isn't the same. Um, a price per acre in a certain area that's maybe you know on an average six thousand dollars an acre. That lot might only have, in that 20 acres might only have. 15 tillable, the rest is wetlands. The wetlands aren't 6,000 an acre. Uh, even though they're part of the acreage, they don't contribute to that property um, like the agricultural land would.
1: So I have a BS A uh, thing where you would find your acreage and your uh, what the assessor thinks the lot value is. Now, if you're dealing with your rural properties where there's a lot of acreage sales, a lot of times these assessor land values are pretty spot on. Um, Clinton County is pretty good at it. Uh, some cities have the same land value for every single property, Leslie. <laughs> um, so it, it's, it doesn't really mean anything and the city of Lansing's are pretty out of touch too with what market is, but it's just an idea um, if you're in a new subdivision, you might see the land values being what everybody paid for their lot or very close to it. And if you've got a slightly larger lot, you can see the difference between your comparable sales. So you might that might be an adjustment. Um, so it's just, I always look at that and it's kind of an easy, easy, easy thing to do. Um, we also use these uh, land charts from the equalization department this is Clinton County, where they break it down by township and uh, tillable land, Um, you know, wooded acreage, swamp, your first building site, it's typical, like, they've got the first building site for one acre is uh, 34.5 with every acre on top of that, another 4,500. So, in my experience, they're pretty is pretty uh, spot on so based on uh, a research of land sales over the last um, couple of years so and then um to get a picture of that i can email it to you if you'd like it too um, and then the next one is the ingham county land chart this is in flex in the tools um, page two so And that um, gives you your, you know, your tillable, your auxiliary, your woods, and your wetland. So a lot of times I use these numbers um, for my adjustments for acreage if I can support them. Questions on that? So we have a couple questions online about land. How much value would a well and electricity add to an un-
2: developed 40-acre parcel? Uh, Well, I think it goes back to the, um, you know, what we've talked about with any other uh, improvement to a property, um, pole barns, whatnot, it's, uh, you know, contributory value. Um, Is that well still good? Is the septic system still operational uh, or... The electricity, um, you know, is it? Is it? When was it run? Is it still? Is it still active? Um, There's a lot of things that go into it. You could have it, but doesn't mean it's necessarily in working order. Um, And I think the acreage speak for itself. With 40 acres, more than the addition of a well, might the well might be in a spot where the potential buyer doesn't want to build a house. It might be up front, and they want the house in the back. What's that well does nothing for that property at that point.
1: depends. Yes. So it depends.
2: Yeah, so it depends. <laughs> Thanks for the question though.
1: <laughs> Is it beneficial for sellers to have a basic land survey before selling? A basic. I mean, what, what's the definition of basic? <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, obviously it's always good to have a stake survey if, if you think there's something questionable um i don't think a lot of people get i mean back in the day everybody got like a mortgage report and it was basically what we can find online and they plopped the house on there so um and it might so show some encouragement lisa back there would probably say yes everybody should have a survey right
2: that'd be great (laughs) actually And it, like if, it depends on when you bought the house, too, if you, if you had purchased the property, if, it's, if we're not talking vacant land, or if it even is vacant land. And in that mortgage report five years ago, you had a, a survey. Nothing's changed as far as unless you added additional land or something, nothing's really changed. So that could probably suffice in that situation.
1: It's always helpful if you have a survey to upload it to FLEX so we can look at it or if the property has e- easements, at least it's saying no. Well, I mean, you can put in a barn or a fence right. or a shed things do change and yeah. If you're gonna cover for encroachments, then yes.
3: we wouldn't want one. I, I think yeah, do it on a case by case basis. If you take a look at what the assessor shows the dimensions to be, and you can pretty much pick those out by looking at the property uh, and then look at what could be a a problem. Well, that neighbor's pole barn is awfully close to what I think this line is. Maybe we should get a measurement to make sure it's the proper setback. Or we think we own that stand of nice oak trees back there that we we might want to take down, uh, but, Lo and behold, it's on the neighbor's property and it's not part of yours. So, you know, look at what the assessor shows, look at what you can visually see and and determine Uh, just because the owners have been mowing a stretch of lawn for 30 years does not mean they own it. It could belong to the neighbor and the neighbor just let it go. So.
1: Any other questions? No, okay. So, this is what we've been saying mostly the whole time is uh, good data, review the assessor record. Does a sketch match the house? And, and don't, uh, find, try to find that assessor for that township. A lot of them are very reasonable and they'll send you the, the whole file right away with their sketch and uh, a lot of good information. Um, does the sketch match the house? Ask for old appraisals to see what that square footage was and uh, have the sellers fill out an improvement list and, and upload that to flex so we can make condition adjustments if we need to surveys, building plans, have them lay out the building plans for when we come. That's helpful. HOA docs. Um, once the property is sold, you, you have room to put sold comments like no commission was paid to the buyer or, um, you know, why the concessions were so high. Uh, They put in a new septic or they had to put in a new roof or something like that. That's always really helpful. Wanda?
4: Yes, um, I just would like to say that, unfortunately, you cannot rely on the sketch matching the current house. The reason why I say that is I had a situation where the... Inspector says to the seller, so to speak, you need to either tear down that garage or you need to fix it. So the seller says to me, well, I'm just gonna tear down the garage. So I say to the seller in an email, you should have a servant before you tear down the garage. The seller says, well, the sketch from the city shows that the garage is on my property. He tore down the garage. Well back in probably the late seventies, the seller had sold the garage to the neighbor across the street. And it was never recorded. The the seller, because he was a he had deep pockets, he ended up having to buy the house that was across the street from the garage that he tore down so you cannot rely on the sketch from the city and the city will tell you that it's your fault because you did not get a survey
1: so i want to just mention that very very good point and and all of us will see a lot of times the city is very slow to update their uh, files there'll be old garages and everything and that's where it's good to say where like if your square footage is different from the assessor put it in the notes you know or put in if if you're using one of our sketches and put it in flex you know this is where we got our square footage because sometimes it's really different it's like how did that you know we we need to explain why everything's different and doesn't match public records because we're being reviewed on several levels and mostly by just computers and if we don't you know, answer it down deep, we're, we're in trouble. So anyways, so a, a lot of these extra pages here, um, we're kind of running short on time. Just uh, like I said, if you have HOA docs, um, let us know, we need to know the fees, we need to know the legal name of the HOA, we need uh, condo docs, all that upfront. And uh, so we can complete our appraisal. So whatever you can get from your buyers or your sellers right away, that's really helpful. Uh, This is uh, the the condo docs that once you list a condo, make sure you uh, get this form from the lender so you can get this filled out right away. And so it's smooth at the end and the, the uh, property management company fills that out because we are supposed to have that at the time that, that you give us the appraisal request or at least by the time we send it in. And then this is an area on the uh, uh, third page of the appraisal where we check uh, the HOA information. I'm just going through this stuff fast. The next, this is a seller questionnaire uh, that you can just have your seller sit down and fill out. This is the year that I remodeled the kitchen. This is the year I did the bathroom um, and any other important stuff. And you can just pop this into Flex Docs too, and it's super helpful.
3: Going along with the the sales, uh, if We've scheduled an appointment to go to view a home for the appraisal. You don't need to shoo the seller away. It's okay if they're gone to work, that's fine. We don't necessarily need them there, but we don't have to, you don't have to shoo them away. Uh, It's just fine if they're there. We can glean a lot more information about it. Um, I myself, single guy works from home. It's just me and the dog. So it's nice to see another friendly face each morning. Uh, So.
2: Well, and and, Honestly, the sellers know more about the house than we do. We're only there for a short time and they've been living there. They know the improvements or things that may be right or wrong with the house. And it's nice to have uh, that conversation with them.
1: And yeah. So, so basically I put in this quality and condition um, slide because we have to decide, um, give a rating to each house. So it's basically like a C1 is your uh, new construction down to a C6 which you cannot live in. <laughs> it's not habitable. So most most houses I would say range in the C4. they're just a normal build, but you know we have a we have maybe a, maybe once, Couple C1s and our, or not, no, I mean, C1s new construction. Sorry, I'm up. But C2 would be like a flip um, or a house maybe under five years old. Uh, C3, maybe under 20 years old. We all have it in our mind. Probably what yeah, what rate? yes, yeah,
2: something that's been updated. Um, yeah. You know, it's going to obviously no different than the, the, time, the age of the home. It's going to change the effective age. It's also going to change your rating. Uh, you know, so when you have a house that's maybe built in the nineties that has a brand new kitchen in it with, you know, granite counters and quiet closed cabinets and that sort of thing. Um, obviously those weren't around in the nineties or at least the quiet clothes weren't.
3: Yeah. You know, you got to weigh the differences uh, just because the homeowners have taken care of it and it looks pristine, doesn't mean it's in good condition. Um, it could be 40 years old, uh, I I did a house in the west side neighborhood, and the mint green tile, the Pepto-Bismol pink tile in the bathrooms, uh, the aluminum cabinets or enamel cabinets, I should say, in the kitchen uh, did not have a scratch or chip in them. It looked like nobody had lived in the house for 70 years,
2: but it doesn't mean it was in good condition. And and I'm going to add something to that too. When it comes to an improvement like the kitchen or bath. Yeah, we're getting on to that next. So this goes right hand in hand with it. Um, no, just because uh, a house looks nice or the kitchen's um, in good shape doesn't necessarily mean it's been updated. Um, if, if you want to find out what's going on out in the world, look at some, you know, some pictures, go to Home Depot. You might see Erica or myself there. Um we seem to frequent that a lot and see each other. Um, go to these places, go to Lowe's, go to Menards, look online and see what updated really is. Um, look at pictures of houses that have been updated on Instagram, whatever. Um just because you know, it's it it looks nice doesn't mean it's necessarily updated or renovated. Right.
1: So and then this next slide is just about quality, so and then we have to break it down. Inequality. So, a one maybe we have a couple in Lansing that's like a castle, um, down to a Q6, which is not habitable. So, but in this instance, too, we probably fall in the Q3 and Q4 for our areas. So, but that's all based on uh, stock materials versus custom made uh, cabinets and all that stuff. So,
2: we do have a question. Have so, question: uh, So, if you have a C three and a C four,
1: uh-huh. they're
2: identical homes. What, what does that do to the value?
1: Well, it all comes down to what the what they've done to the inside. I mean, it could be twenty thousand dollars in improvements, um, a new kitchen versus an old kitchen. So, if we can pull that condition adjustment out by the price per square foot, that that it might have sold for, or the cost of a feature less depreciation. So, so it,
2: okay. it, same it, thing with the cues here. Probably.
1: Yeah, yeah, yes, but, yes. And
2: again, that I'm going to go back and we will all agree. Pictures, please. Um, we don't know when we're looking at pictures comparing to our subject if it's just the front of the house, right? What that kitchen looks like.
1: Well, and that's and when we're finding comps, we want to make sure they they're all in the same cues, same quality, because that's such a subjective, you know, uh, adjustment. So there's
2: a lot of gray in the yeah. Q3, four, all that stuff. Um, it it, it um, replaced the average good port uh, from before. And there's a lot of, there, there could be a C4 that leans towards the lower end of C4 or the higher end of C4. Same with C3 and you know, you have maybe some improvements, but it's not all improved. Uh, you know, that might be like borderline. Um, so there, it's, a, it's basically based, again, on the condition of the home and, and the pictures that we see and are provided with.
3: It's good to get to know your remodelers and builders, because if you've got a house that has a certain feature, you can call them and say, hey, how much would it cost you to put this into a house? And they can give you a number and then you can... Weigh that against what you think the market would pay for
1: that feature. So there's a question online about pictures and why do the agents need to take pictures since you're going into the houses anyways?
2: I don't. I don't we're not talking about the subject that we're looking at. Um, in general, we're talking about the comparables that we're looking at. Um, you know, we're going through that house as well. Uh, say it's a sale or a refinance, but when we're looking at a another two-story you know, home in a certain neighborhood to see what features it has, what condition it has, the amenities. If they're not noted or seen, then we have no idea what they look like and how can we compare that to our subject at that point.
3: And not only does it help us, but it helps out your fellow realtors that are doing their market analysis in order to price their home. They can then see, yes, this is exactly like mine, or no, this is nothing like the one I'm trying to sell, so I need to move on.
2: And, and we, we, we know that you're trying to sell a house. We know that you want professional pictures most of the time. Um, those pictures can be put into private um, so, you know, so that we can see them. Um, and those are very important, and they, they really have an impact on not only our job, but your job. In terms of how you run your CMAs and comparing apples to apples and similar products and interiors and amenities like barns and pools, um, if those aren't seen. How can you, you know, hang your reputation on that, so to speak?
1: So, the um, next slide I have up is a lot of times people will read our appraisal report and automatically our form will say, no improvements in the last 15 years down in the down in the improvements section and that's just if a house has been normally maintained and maybe your your 1940 house it hasn't changed and but then people will read that and say well but we we painted it or we did this and that but it it's it's talking about major components of the house done within the last fifteen years. So and then there's a difference between updated and that's your maybe your paint and carpet and did a little bit of something, but in that remodeled where you actually took out the cabinets, you just didn't paint the cabinets. So a painted kitchen is not a remodeled kitchen. <laughs> so and that, that's a little confusing, and that's where, you know, pictures help and don't say something. It's totally gutted if we're looking at pictures, and it's obviously not totally gutted. I mean, and that's for your own liability, too. It's like don't over-exaggerate because then you have to, if you have another comp, um, if you over-exaggerate on one, you're just, you're not helping out your next sale. You know, anyways. <laughs> So here's a kitchen in a 1990 house or 1980s house with these uh, laminate cabinets in the listing. It said it was a totally remodeled kitchen and obviously it's not.
2: Yeah, those, I think that might be actually in the 40s. Uh, those are those flat front cabinets that we've all seen. 1987. Um, was it real? Yes. <laughs> um, I kind of. And, and they put, you know, a ceramic backsplash and maybe a, a nice, you know, granite counter on it, um, if that. Uh, but, you know, this is a good, I, this is a good, um, this is lipstick on a pig, really. Um, that's what we kind of refer it as. It, it's, it's, it's not updated. A portion of it is. Um, but those cabinets are, are dated, um, and so be careful when you're saying completely gutted or remodeled. You could say, you know, granite counters and ceramic backsplash. And that, that still is an update. It's just not completely remodeled.
3: And your, your sellers don't necessarily know that. They think they remodeled it, even though it was just the backsplash and paint. Uh, so that's when they say we remodeled the kitchen. Well, you're looking at those cabinets and you know they haven't been. Ask them, so what all did you do? And then put those in your notes. And then that way you can explain it in in the listing and say that it was actually updated with countertops,
1: backsplash, paint. Right. And then, so this photo is actually new cabinets in the same style of house. So this would be an updated um, kitchen because it's got the new cabinets. Now remodeled means you like totally gutted something and changed walls and all that. So... But it's just kind of an example of what is new and what isn't new. So. And this, I I can skip this. this is, you want to? It? No. Okay. Can <laughs> I pass it? Okay. Do you want to talk about collaborate. Manufacture? Okay. Manufactured? Yeah. You like,
3: go for it. No, I, I don't. <laughs> but that's okay. okay. Um, manufactured homes, uh, important things to note about them. Uh, one is how to determine if it is a manufactured home. Uh, there's a lot of homes on the market that were built on site by a contractor from the area, but from the outside, they look a lot like a manufactured home. The way you tell is you go inside and you look at the underside of the home itself go into the basement, look in the crawl space. Does it have a steel frame? Uh, The photo that's up there now, you can see the steel I-beams that the house was built on. That's to trailer the house from the warehouse or manufacturing site where it was built out to where it's gonna stay forever, hopefully. Uh, If it's got that steel undercarriage, it's a manufactured home. At that point, you need to look for two other things. Uh, The next slide here shows the HUD tag. There should be two of these on your standard branch home, one on each opposite corner. One should be labeled A or number one, one should be labeled B or number two, depending on the manufacturer. That again tells you it was a manufactured home and it meets the guidelines that manufactured homes are supposed to be built by. The third thing you need to look for is this sticker that's up on the screen right now. That should be either in one of the kitchen cabinets or in the master bath cabinet. Uh, If you've got a seller or buyer and they've got this in the home, uh, tell them if you ever remodel the home, save this cabinet door. It's very important for us to have because we have to jump through a lot of hoops to get this information to put on our forms if it's not in the house. Uh, But that, again, tells you who made it, when it was made, in other words, how old it is, uh, what standards it was built by, and what features went into the home when it was originally built. So those are the most important things to determine if you have a manufactured home or not.
1: And then the valuation, we have to compare it to other manufactured homes. And we can drive miles, but that comes back to making sure you list the property as manufactured in the MLS so we can search for it. So, But we do have to find other manufactured homes.
3: There is a difference between a manufactured home and a modular home. Now they're both manufactured in a sense because they're both built in a factory, but the word manufactured is different in this case. Uh, Manufactured is built by a different set of standards. They can use thinner walls, they can use thinner materials, uh, they can use lower grade items. Uh, A modular home is built to the exact same standard as Joe Builder down the street is gonna build a home on your site. It's just, it's done in a factory, so there's no weather delays built continuously. Every day those workers come in and build that house and it gets done in a very short period of time.
1: So, so in a modular you're going to see these stickers which they're going to have you're going to have the silver usually or a blue sticker next to the data plate. And the data plate looks a little bit different than the manufactured. and this is typically under the kitchen sink. So if you kind of walk into a ranch out in the country and it's like, hmm, is this, you know, what is this? Always look under the kitchen sink and um, you can typically find this or maybe on the electrical panel. Um, but but in, with, a man, with a modular, we can compare it to other stick built homes of similar quality. So, but the manufactured, we have to use manufactured comps. So, okay. So, this uh, just sorry,
2: do they both need affidavit of the fixtures
1: only? Not them, only the manufacturer. manufacturer. Yeah, and then the manufacturer will need a um, a structural engineer's inspection too if you're going FHA or um, so that'll be an extra cost too for your buyer, your seller, whoever. So. Um, access points, uh, make sure you have access points for the appraisers so they can take pictures in all these areas. Now, HUD just came out with a new guideline, um, in January that if it's detrimental to the appraiser's health to try to get in the attic or crawl space, that we can de- defer that to an inspection, um, because some
0: attic. Accesses,
1: you know, if they're over twenty feet or whatever, it's it's kind of scary. So I think it's a liability thing, but still, um, we do still have to take pictures in all of these buildings, so we need them open.
3: Uh, yeah, if you've got a house that has a pool barn shed, always make sure that there's a key left on site because the lenders want to see inside of that. Make sure nothing is being grown or mixed uh so or livable yes uh so please make sure that that key is is left on the counter or or in the key box um and that it's it's labeled you know here's the barn key uh so that we can then go out take our interior pictures of the structure put the key back on the countertop uh also uh one thing i've run into is if you ever can please put some kind of a ring on the key in the key box uh i have had a case where I fumbled it on a very cold day, and it went through the cracks on the front porch and was now in a crawl space that deep. And I there was no way I could get to it.
1: So um, maybe have your seller take a look in their attic before they list the house and they might find something, <laughs> find a surprise. So this is a, a, a mildew sub- substance that had had to be remediated. Um this was in an attic in Diamonddale, somebody's, somebody's kid hiding a shopping cart, probably. <laughs> and then um, then we have to obviously look in crawl spaces and report what we see there. This is, uh, this is just where I put about the GFI plugs not being an FHA that we would be asking for an inspection to be done. Um, we do have to note what appliances are in the house for FHA and RD. We don't have to test them, but we do have to note. Um, I look, usually look at the disclosure statement to see if they're operational, but um, they just changed the guidelines on this too in January. So um, that's a little thing about FHA. Now we get to the fun stuff of measuring. As of April 1st, April Fool's Day, they made us all go to a standardized uh, way of measuring for ANSI, which most of us did it that way anyways. The only thing that changed pretty much is the second floor, where now it has to be a minimum of seven feet across. Um, Let me see, where? yeah, seven feet by seven feet. And then you measure down to the to where it drops to the five feet. So if it's less than the seven feet in the middle and it's all livable area, we can um, take that square footage and it's not going to show up as a 1,200 square foot house. Now it's going to show up as a 900 square foot house in the appraisal. And then we take that extra 300, and we put it on a different line in the grid. So they changed our reporting guidelines. So if you ever look at an appraisal and say, why is this only 900 square feet? It's because you didn't have the seven feet on the second floor for a span of seven feet. But, and you still have to have like the heat and the egress.
2: Finished, finished finished product up there. Um, But again, seven feet at its peak in the middle down to a five foot, uh, knee wall. If it's a Cape Cod type situation, right. um, there are tricks to this. Um, you could have somebody measure where five feet is on your body, <laughs> like on your shoulder or something. And, you know, kind of does where it kind of comes down. There's laser tools. Most of us have them, um, very easy to use. Even if, if it's, a, you know, you're wondering, is this seven feet at its peak, uh, place it on the ceiling and, hit the ground and you'll know. Um, now, if you're over seven foot, you obviously know, but there's not many people like that. Um, so be cautious of this though, when, when going back to what I said earlier about the assessor's records, uh, you know, they, they might call it a story and a half um, or a bungalow or something like that. And that doesn't meet that requirement. Not that that square footage isn't noted and or counted, Um, If it's heated in a livable space, um, we just can't count it as square footage, uh, like Beth said. So you might see a discrepancy in the square foot from where you had it listed and where we came in at. And that's probably the reason why.
1: And it still has to be, if it's still like, if it's like six feet up there and it's like a typical bungalow that you can barely stand up in, you're not going to get square footage on that. Regardless, so it still has to meet the code um, things. Even though they said we can put some square footage on the lower line, it still has to meet minimum um, building requirements and all that. So, so this is just another uh, kind of sketch where it shows, uh, you know, how to how to measure the second floor, and then this is kind of an outline of where. In a situation like that, we put where the first floor is, in, in my example, the first floor is only 782 square feet. And then the upper level that had lower ceilings shows on the very bottom of 230 square feet. So even when I add the two together, I'm very similar to my comparable. So sometimes I never have to make an adjustment Because they're all you're comparing apples to apples. It's like some of the neighborhoods they all have the same, just slightly less than seven feet. So you're kind of, kind of, comparing uh, the same type of property. So it really doesn't matter. Um, This is a split level. So this is um, an example from BSNA, and. And we just want to reiterate that in a split level home, anything below grade, partially below grade has to be included as a basement. So it has to be all 100% above grade to be on that square footage line in our appraisal. And when you report it in flex, only the anything below grade needs to be in the basement. And then any finished needs to go into the basement finish. So, and then also report those as a multi-split and they're not a two-story, they're not a three-story, they're a multi-split. So when we're looking for split level comps, we can just go to multi-split and find those sales.
3: You gotta note that every assessor in the regions we deal with reports this wrong. So if you're dealing with a split level, Forget what the assessor says. Look at their sketch, yes, but forget what they say is square footage.
2: Isn't, isn't most of flex not accurate?
3: <laughs> we're trying to change that. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I've done a few of them and they're not. Well, I think that needs to go where, that's why we're here. We're trying to educate and help you out so that you can become better and we can all work together to be better. So we'll solve
1: that problem eventually. So, yeah, so this example, I kind of broke it down where, so the assessor just, they just have a different way of doing that. So they make sure that they're taxing you on every optional every (laughs) finished area that they can. So that's why their square footage always looks more because they're including that lower level family room. So in flex, you know, we would break it down to level one. is like your 480 square feet um, and that would be in the basement so that's how I have it up here you've got your total basement is 912 and then 480 of that is finished and then the rest goes in the above grade so it all equals out in the end but if you report it make sure you try to report it correctly or we can walk you through it too to show what you need to I've done measurements for people and just showed them how, how it needs to be reported on flex and we're, we're happy to help you there. Um,
5: is it true that below grade square footage is worth less appraisal wise than above grade square footage?
1: It, it, it all depends on the quality, yeah. you know, obviously if, if uh, above and below grade square footage has a different value and it, it all depends. Now, if I, comparing it all split levels and the similar age, similar quality, it should all equal out, so they should all have the similar value because they've been finished to that light quality. So, but if you've got a 1950s ranch with just paneling in the basement, obviously that's not going to contribute much, especially if it doesn't have a ceiling. so, this is an example of a quad level. I've got a picture up there. So, anything below grade is going to go in a basement.
2: So, in, 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 in the standards of measurement, grade is the front door uh, that I've read. So, anything, it's, you know, if you, the floor, the, 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 the first floor. You
3: know, oh, oh, you your know, grade the, the is where floor. the ground is. Right. So, walk around the outside of the house on the ground and look at where it meets the house. And then when you go inside, you have to remember where that reference point is. And if at any time that grade level is now above your feet, that area is below grade. So anything in a lower level where you're looking out and you can see grass right there in front of your eyes, you're below grade. If you're standing on the first floor and you're looking out, the grass is below you, you're above grade. So that can be counted as what's called gross living area. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, so it is it is confusing. And I see a look on a couple of people's faces. Because, or you might walk in the front door, and the slope of, of the of your topography or your land, you might have a door on the side and a slider off the basement. Well, which is it, right? Um, it's your, I've always been under the impression that it's your main entry into the home. And while some people that live on a lake will say, oh, well, um, you know the lake people refer to the the back side of their house as their front door um well either i'm trespassing to get to your front door or because i don't own a jet ski and i can't come in that way so it's still it's it's the main entry into your house
1: so this is a good in it how it says it has to be a hundred percent below or above grade to be in your square footage your above grade square footage. You're still going to get value for it, but it's just how we have to report it, basically. Yeah. And these are all then reported as multi-splits and not two stories. And, and that's a good point, too. I've seen a lot of ranches where people say that they have two stories because they have a basement. A ranch is a one level. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So on that picture, though, it says Sorry.
5: on the last picture, it says the grade level line
1: is at the bottom, but then it doesn't start there. Yep. Well, that means that anything in the red
3: is a basement. And what you're looking at in that red, you're only looking at a half a story. Right. If, you're, like I said, you were standing inside the house, that red area would only be covering from your waist up. So
5: I've always understood that
3: it's basically...
5: The highest grade level, so you know, it the grass meets the house down there, and then kind of on the side, the grass meets the house up top. So it's the it's the highest point where the grass meets the house and up that counts as above grade, correct? Correct. So, like a berm has no square footage, right? No above grade, Uh, technically. uh, Okay,
1: technically, but it does.
2: (laughs) But a berm home, yes, technically special there's no square footage um because you're mowing your roof but um it still has usable value to it yes that's a unique home and and when i will say too when you find a unique home like that um maybe print it out whether you you're using it or not and you're looking for comparables print it out and put it like in an oddball file or something um i know i do that i'm sure you guys do because you might need to run across that sometime, and so when you have something, even if it's five years ago, there's not a lot of earth firm homes around, so you can reference back to that. Uh, It's a good practice just to have those crazy geodesic dome homes in, uh, and you never know.
1: This is just another. uh, This kind of gives you an idea of there's an area of above the entry level that it's open. So when we do our measuring, we take out that foyer square footage that's a two-story foyer. So that's sometimes why your square, foot, square footage might be different from the assessor because they don't know there's open areas. So and we always get a question of what what is a legal bedroom? And obviously uh, in the city, most jurisdictions say you have to have 70 square feet, uh, proper egress window, privacy, you can't walk through, uh, no glass doors, um, ceiling height, the code is uh, ceiling height of 6.8 um, inches. Smoke detectors in each room are right outside the doors, whatever's code, um, two electrical outlets. These are all from the code department in the city. No closets are required, but it still needs to be functional as a bedroom Um, for FHA. Yeah, I should have taken that out. Um, FHA says to follow code. So they do say you should have smoke detectors now. Um, But anyways, these are basically, you know, and you should have heat in every room too. So any questions on bedrooms? So.
3: How about bedrooms and basements? Yeah. <laughs> uh, important to note there is uh, the the if you're going to call it a bedroom that's in the that happens to be in the basement, it needs to have an egress window, which is the was it 5.4 square feet of access. That's enough room to get a body out of. I think there's another stipulation, and it's going to depend on where you live, what the county or township says. It has to be. Uh, 30 to 36 inches off the floor. Uh, So again, you wanna have your tape measure to figure out how that is. Uh, I've had cases where they say it's a bedroom in a basement and I get there and the windowsill is at my chin. Well, no 10 or 11 year old can climb through that easily in the middle of the night when there's a fire. So that's not considered a bedroom. What we generally do is call it a den or a rec room. Right, and you can't
1: call it a bedroom if you have to walk out of the room and go out out to another window or to a walkout, that's always a common question, too. It's got to be in that room.
2: Yes. You
1: answered the question. Okay. <laughs> um, Megan, do we
2: have other questions online? Okay. Do we want to get to those now or a, or a couple now or at the end? Okay.
1: Okay. So this next one, um, Fannie Mae is really cracking down on appraisers for bias
0: or presumed
1: bias and um, flagging appraisals that might use a word, desirability, um, undesirability, words, words like that. If we use any of those words in our appraisals, we immediately get flagged and get a letter from Fannie Mae saying, use this word, never use this word again. And I've noticed lately that there's been some listings that people are using this word again this is a desirable neighborhood this is is it desirable to who so you should really not use those words unless you it's it's not a word that fair housing is immediately um, banned but Fannie Mae has banned it with us and I would just use caution when you use those types types of descriptions in your listings Beth,
4: I had a quick question. Wonder, I just wanted to know, it was on the, from the other slide about the bedroom. What if there's a heat register right outside the bedroom door?
1: You know, that's pretty common with an old farmhouse. Um, so a lot of times it's okay if it, it can adequately heat. I have had somebody maybe come out and do an inspection. Of the furnace to see if it can adequately heat that second floor, but it, the second floor does have to have heat to it. So, um, installing an electric baseboard hardwire unit, um, you know, suffices. So, but it sometimes I leave that up to a, a actual heating contractor to say if it's adequate. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, just a reminder to follow the code of ethics paint a true picture of your listing avoid exaggeration don't clone old listings 99 um, percent of the time that data is incorrect you you can kind of see it's like where did this weird square footage ever come come from and you look 10 years back somebody started that trail and it was it, it should have been stopped um ask, you know, all of us do private work and are available, you know, to measure or do a uh, backup appraisals, reviews, whatever you want to hire us for. (laughs) Uh, And if, uh, yeah, but anyways, we need good data and, uh, Whatever you have, you can have out for us. That would be really helpful. And there are good tools online to Google on how to measure a house um, that, you know, carry a tape with you or whatever and ask us to help you. Um, Conclusion, talk to the appraiser. Don't hide things. Show up. Meet us. Don't do show and go and make friends with an appraiser.
2: All right, now we have uh, some time for questions. Um, I know you guys have had your, your time to speak here. We have some questions uh, from uh, Megan, from the, the viewers at home.
1: Um, if a house has several offers all over asking, it, does that impact the appraised value?
3: Yes, because now we've got multiple people that see value in that home. And that's going to make us work harder to prove that value or disprove it. It could be they're not seeing it right, but most cases are, they are seeing it right. So we're going to do what we have to do to find what are, what are these people seeing and how much, how many dollars can we put on?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it'll help us substantiate an increasing market adjustment if we can, if we can find the support for that. And, um, you know, see where the pending sales are going. So obviously, it's it's we really have to analyze the market for every single appraisal, um, like what Doug's statistics on a macro level, and then bury them down to a micro level just for that property type. So anything you can tell us um, about the listing history is is always helpful.
3: Yeah, I don't know about YouTube, but over the last few years, I've been calling or messaging uh, the realtors to say, how many offers did you have? What was the price range of those offers? Uh, What were the uh, concessions involved with those offers? Those are things that some of the lenders want to know, and they help me prove my point. If I can say this house had 15 offers, and five of them were over asking price, and I'm seeing trends in the market that the values are going up, now I've got all my data that I can prove that and I should be able to put the right dollar figure on that appraisal. Megan?
1: What about barn dominiums? Half of a barn is finished and used as living and the other half is a pool barn.
2: Um, I can speak on that. I've done quite a few of them. Um, They are a a newer um, hot trend um, that same with like maybe tiny homes or or we haven't really seen one here yet. I did do a, I did consult a couple for a container home. Um, now, if you if you want to see what they look like, go to Instagram or something and follow like Barn Dominium, You know, some site. On them. They're they're very they're very neat. I like them. Um, I think they're pretty cool. You do drive right into your house, um, but not technically like into the living room. But I've seen some that I'm working on a new construction one right now that they're renovating a 60 by 120 Morton old Morton barn into um, a house. That's an enormous amount of square footage. On top of that, they're adding a second floor to half of the home. Um, so you're talking a house that's got, you know, an extremely high uh, square footage count on a slab. Um, but it's heated floors. I mean, some of these are very intricate. They've in-floor heat. Um, you know, they've got steel roof, steel siding. They're well insulated. They're they're a, more of a. I don't know if anybody's done one or has seen them. They're a little bit more trendy out there. But not all lenders are going to, not all lenders are going to back it, uh, and 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 or think it's a property that's you know going to stay around.
3: Yeah, that's where it's important to note it is a bardominium in your listing, whether it's public or private comments because you may have a buyer that wants to work with a
2: certain lender and that lender does not do those kind of type of homes. So Okay, any questions out here. We're about to wrap things up here. Then, um, if, you, if you didn't get your question up online um, and/or and, and answered, feel free to contact us. Uh, we would be happy to answer your question. We have one more.
0: Just just a quick question. Um, I know sometimes when I'm running comparables, I also like to see what the competition's going to be by taking a look at active listings. Mm-hmm. Do you guys do that as well? Absolutely. Yes. And, it, mm-hmm. and it's
1: required in a lot of our appraisal types, too, to provide an active or a couple pendings. And um, FHA, that's part of the new FHA update, too. They, they kind of let us slide the last couple of years not having to have all that because the market was going up, up, up. But now they're now our appraisal reports. They want active and pending again, and yeah. that was a big thing once uh, the crash. We had to see where's the direction going. <laughs> so
3: yeah. Well, that's what's important for you when you're listing a home is take a look at what your competition is going to be, and if everybody else is over two hundred thousand dollars in your little neighborhood and you want a quick sale, shouldn't you be down at the bottom of that? Uh, maybe those homes have been on the market for, you know, 60, 70 days when everything is selling in less than a week. Now you know you don't have competition because everybody else overpriced that house.
2: Well, um, we thank you for listening to us babble up here today. Um, again, if you, we'll stay after for a little bit if you guys have questions and anybody online who um, would like to reach out to either one of us for any questions where we're available when we are. Um, don't forget your forms to turn in, I guess I'm doing all Jeff's announcements for him. So he doesn't have to. No, he is. Is he job again? Yes. Okay.
0: Right. So
2: right. first, thank, thank you very much. We
0: it. Yeah. Thank you to, uh, Michael Perrin, Doug Petroff, Beth Graham. We appreciate your expertise in sharing it with us today. Um, a couple of quick announcements and, uh, we will wrap thing up wrap things up here. Uh, first, want to make sure that everybody knows uh, that we uh, would like to see you at the presidential inaugural next Thursday. That is on the 23rd uh, between 4 and 6 p.m. Uh, here at the association. Uh, join us uh, in welcoming our incoming leadership, celebrate the 2022 committee achievements, connect with fellow members, and enjoy some food and drink. Uh, again, that is next Thursday between 4 and 6 p.m. here at the association. Also some things to put on your calendar, some uh, upcoming industry updates, March 9th, 2023, American Disabilities Act compliance with Cheryl Davis and fair housing from NAR with uh, Alexia Smoker. Uh, on April 20th, uh, diversity, equity and inclusion with Matt DeFanis. I've uh, heard Matt speak, he's excellent. So make sure you put that on your calendar as well. Also, May 18th, legal review with Jared Roberts. Again, put that on your calendar as well. Also, if you don't know how to check uh, where you stand as far as your continuing education credits are concerned, please visit cemarketplace.net, cemarketplace.net, and get an update of where you stand so you can make sure that you keep track of it. Thank you very much. Have a great day, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.